0: From Cross Culture Church in Raleigh, this is Crosswalk.
1: Well, if God said it, I believe it. Or you may have gotten an answer, well, I've I've experienced, it's transformed my life. Or you've gotten an answer, well, I just have faith that it's true. Now, some of you might be sitting here thinking, well, that's what I would have answered.
0: Why do I believe the Bible is true? That's probably the greatest question any of us could ever answer.
1: For someone who is looking and searching into why the Bible is true and reliable, those answers are inadequate.
0: Pastor Clay is in Toronto, Canada this weekend with a mission team from Cross Culture Church. Today's message is from our worship pastor, John Spolino, who continues the Deceptive Cons series with an overwhelming body of evidence for the reliability of the Bible. Now here's Pastor John.
1: When I was a teenager, when I was a student, there was only one thing that could ruin a youth trip. I should probably be a little bit more precise. There's only one thing that could ruin my devious plans on a youth trip, and that was chaperones. They were the worst. You know, they would come in with their sound logic, their good advice, their parental wisdom, and I would know that all they wanted was the best for me, but they would come to me and say, John, why do you have five cans of shaving cream, two bottles of Nair hair removal, and three dozen eggs? I mean, what on earth could you be planning? And so then for the next, you know, 15 to 20 minutes, I would have to listen to them prove to me that my plan was stupid and that it was not going to end well for me. So they would say something like, John, you know that when you throw one egg at one girl and it breaks and one ounce of yolk gets on one curl of her hair, you know it's not going to end well for you. You're not strong You're not fast. And so first I would protest, hey, I'm strong and I'm fast. But then I would have to go back on my days on the cross uh, country team, you know, that sport where you run three miles for fun. And I was undefeated in the position of coming in last. Um, And so I actually, for two years, I came in last every single race. That's how bad I was. I was not fast at all. So finally, I would have to concede and be like, okay, I'm not strong. I'm not fast. Some of these girls are like pumas. You know, I'm a super freaky fast. I mean, it was, it was unreal. And so I would have to agree with them. and i have to look at their arguments, the reliability of their argument, and have to say, wow, I'm wrong. However, for me, it wasn't an intellectual issue. It was a heart issue. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And what I wanted to do was throw an egg. I think the same logic is, um, I guess, coherent or or is the same thing applies to mankind and our relationship with the Bible. Most people reject the Bible not because of an intellectual issue, but because of a heart issue. They don't want to be told what to do. They want to do what they want to do. And so this morning's Deceptive Con is that the Bible is an unreliable source of truth. I believe that Satan has infiltrated our culture to tell us the Bible's not reliable. We can't know that the Bible that we have today is what we had back then. It's not accurate. It's not precise. Everything's gotten mixed up. We have variance and translation issues. And so obviously the Bible cannot be relied upon. It's interesting, the Bible. It's probably the most unique Bible in the world because it is the most argued against and yet is the most attested for. It's the most argued against so that people are trying to show that it's not reliable and yet it actually has the most support for being reliable, accurate, and precise, which goes back to that it's not an intellectual problem, it's a heart problem. We grasp on to arguments to try to show that the Bible is not reliable because if we were to in fact agree that the evidence speaks for itself and that it is true and reliable and precise, that means that the claim that the Bible has about a God who has a claim on your life means that that is true, which means you have to make a decision. Just like little teenage John Spolino, he could either reorient his life around the truth or he can willingly oppose it and do what he wanted to do anyways, which didn't really end well for me. It was actually kind of embarrassing, but I won't get into that story. The same way, we, if we see the facts and the evidence for the reliability of the Bible, we have to come to a decision. Either we can reorient our life around the truth or we can willingly oppose it. I think that this, the question, why do I believe that the Bible is true, is probably the greatest question that we can answer. If you're someone in this room this morning who says, you know what, I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe in Jesus. You know, I'm just kind of looking for answers. You know, I'm trying to understand this thing called Christianity and all the different uh, divisions. And like all, I have all these questions and I'm glad you're here. And at some point in your searching, you may have gone up to a Christian and said, hey, why do you believe the Bible's true? And you may have gotten an answer like this. Well, if God said it, I believe it. Or you may have gotten an answer, well, I've, it's, I've experienced, it's transformed my life. Or you've gotten an answer, well, I just have faith that it's true. Now, some of you might be sitting here thinking, well, that's what I would have answered. Well, I don't think those are bad answers, but I think they're incomplete answers. For someone who is looking and searching into why the Bible is true and reliable, those answers are inadequate. Those are great answers if, you, if you're declaring your faith in Jesus and declaring your faith in God and declaring your faith that you believe that this Bible is true, but it's not really helpful for those who are looking for answers. If you're a believer in this room this morning, what I want to do is give you some adequate answers. Not so that you can win an argument. I want to give you some answers so that at the end of the evidence... You can show people a Savior that loves them, that cares for them, that preserved His word in an unbelievable way, just so that he could tell them how much he loved them and cherishes them. That's the whole point about proving the reliability of the Bible. And so if you would turn with me this morning to Second Peter, chapter one, if you have your Bibles, Second Peter, chapter one, verse 16. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, it's okay. We'll have the scripture up on the screen for you. Now, some of you might be saying, John, you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. You know, that's a circular argument. I understand that. But I'm going to say two things to that. First is I'm going to use a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of outside the Bible evidence. But secondly, I would say to that, you would never ask me to describe to you an elephant without being able to use its major characteristics. Like, it has a trunk, it's big, it's scared of mice, big flappy ears. Whatever it might be, you would never ask me to do that. So I will talk about what the Bible says about itself as well. So let's look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. It says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Verse nineteen. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you would do well to to pay at, which you would do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Verse twenty. This is important. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. There are four observations I want to make from the text this morning. It's going to be our framework for this morning's discussion on why do I believe the Bible's true. The four observations, quickly, you don't have to get them all now because I'll come back to them, are this. The four observations are we have a reliable collection of historical documents. Number two is that we have eyewitness accounts. Three, that the Bible claims to have supernatural events. And number four, that the Bible claims to be from God written through men by the Holy Spirit. So let's look at the first point. We have a reliable collection of historical documents. we We have a faith that is not whimsically believed in. We have substance to our faith. We have evidence to our faith. And particularly, we have evidence in historical documents. And you might be asking, why is that important? Well, the biblical account contains of 66 books written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, in three different languages, Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. It was written by 40 different authors, most of whom never knew each other over a 1,500-year time span. That's a unique book. And yet, the Bible contains biblical accounts of places, names, and events. And yet, no archaeological find has been able to disprove the Bible. If we had, you would have heard about it. I mean, you hear about things that the uh, History Channel, you know, puts on. That they say, okay, we found this tomb. Obviously, this was Jesus' um, you know, tomb or whatever. We might have found something. And they make it seem like, oh no, the Bible is uh, unattested for. It's, there's no evidence. Well... Just let you know, usually before they even get to the History Channel, they've been disproven by both biblical and non-biblical scholars, that there really is no weight. But many have tried to disprove the Bible historically, so let's look at a couple of them. The first is the the Belshazzar-Nabonatist conflict. For years, uh, they said that the, the Bible was wrong, because in Daniel it says Belshazzar was the last king. And everybody knows that Nabonidus was the last king. How stupid are Christians that they believe in a Bible that gets such a big fact of history wrong? Well, one day, an archaeologist was digging. He found a cylinder that said Belshazzar on it. So they kept digging, and they found more records. And do you know what the records showed? That there is a unique connection between Nabonidus and Belshazzar. Belshazzar was Nabonidus' father. And Nabonidus loved to go hunting. He would be absent from his country for a long time to go on his expeditions. So Belshazzar would come on in and take over while he was gone. These documents claim that both Belshazzar and Nabonidus were both the last kings of Babylon. And they dropped the argument against the Bible. The second thing is the mythical city conflict. In the 1970s, this is probably one of the greatest discoveries ever in the 1970s, we found this palace called Ebla, E-B-L-A, Ebla. And in this palace, we found 15,000 clay tablets that had all this background of uh, biblical information on it, even though they weren't a biblical city. And so historians have said, you know, mythical cities are in the Bible. We've never heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't even know if Sodom and Gomorrah existed. It's their it would have existed in the middle of a desert, and obviously nobody would live in the middle of the desert. Who would choose to do so? And so for years, they made fun of the Bible, said that Sodom and Gomorrah was a complete mythical city. Well, in these tablets that we found dating back to 2300 BC, they mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah, not in a fictitious way, but as a trade uh, agreement, that it was actually a real city. Not only that, in the past hundred years we have found that there has been five cities actually in the desert around Sodom and Gomorrah that they uncovered these tombs in these cities and they found at least 1.5 million bodies in these tombs. There was a lot of people living in the desert. And not only that, we found two cities that had four inches to two inches of ash covering everything. If you remember the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the god destroys the city with a pillar of fire. What is two cities doing in the middle of the desert with no volcanoes around, doing with 4 to 20 inches of ash and magna, right? That's how you say it, magna, around the architecture. It's interesting. I don't know. Maybe it's Sodom and Gomorrah. I think it is. All right, so another discovery that Ebla had was the literary conflict. For a long time, people said, obviously, the Bible is not true because it's using words that weren't developed till hundreds of years later. Well, thank you, Palace of Ebla, because you showed us that the words that they ridiculed in the Bible were actually around. They dated these tablets again to 2300 B.C., and guess what? They have the words that they were ridiculed. They dropped that argument. Time and time again, we see in archaeology that they have these presuppositions against the Bible. That they argue something against the Bible. And yet, given it enough time, we have found all these things that show that the Bible is actually accurate and precise when it comes to the Old Testament. Let's talk about the New Testament. This is probably the greatest uh, thing that shows the accuracy and the precision of the New Testament. This thing called historiography. Historiography is the critical examination of sources, the selection of particular details from the authentic materials in those sources, and the synthesis of those details into a narrative that stands the test of critical examination. You're probably thinking right now, what is that? Well, we have these things called manuscripts. They are handwritten copies of the original. And so because they used to write on papyrus, it's from the papyri I read, They used to write on this papyrus, and it would deteriorate over time, and they would have to make more handwritten copies because it would deteriorate. In order for us today to keep something from deteriorating, we have to build a nice glass house and humidify it to a certain temperature, and we've got to add all this other stuff so it won't deteriorate. But they didn't have that luxury, so handwritten copies were necessary. And one of the claims against the Bible is, well, you don't have the original sources. Yeah, no, duh. They deteriorated. It doesn't take a genius to figure that out. No ancient writing has the original sources. That's why we have historiography. And what they do is they look at these manuscripts that we have, the handwritten copies, and they find the accuracy and the precision of these documents. And they ask two questions. The first question is, what is the length between the original date written and the earliest manuscript that we have? The closer, the rule of thumb is the closer you get in distance, the more precise, the more accurate it is. So let's look at a couple of secular literature for uh, for a moment. Pliny the Younger, he wrote, from the time he wrote to the closest manuscript was 750 years. Plato, from the time he wrote, from the earliest manuscript was 1,200 years. Caesar's Gaelic Wars, he wrote in the first century B.C., The earliest manuscript was 900 A.D., which puts that around 1,000 years in between. Aristotle's Poetics, 340 B.C., the earliest date, 1100 A.D., puts that around 1,400 years. Sophocles was 1,400 years. Euripides was 1,300 years. The second most well-preserved book in literature is Homer's Iliad. It was written in 900 B.C., The earliest manuscript is 400 BC, an astounding 500 years. That's amazing. Historians are so impressed that we have a document that is only 500 years removed from the original date that it was written. Let's talk about the New Testament for a moment. Within the last 100 years and recent discoveries, specifically with the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have a piece of the Gospel of Mark that dates around 68 A.D., for those of you that are wondering, if Christ died between 30, sometime between 30 and 33 AD, that puts that document with between 30 and 40 years of Jesus' death. And so, even liberally, with this piece of document, we can say that we have a manuscript within 50 years of the original date written. That is amazing. 500 years, second most well preserved book, 50 years, the New Testament, with this Gospel of Mark that we found with the Dead Sea Scrolls. The second thing that they look at is, okay, if we have this closeness, well, how many manuscripts do we have? That's important. They just, they, uh, scholars say the more documents you have, the more discrepancies you can see. For instance, if uh, we had 100 documents, and it said John likes to go to the cupcake shop, okay? It has a phrase, John likes to go to the cupcake shop. And then one out of the 99 said John likes to go to the cupcake shop. And I forgot a P on one document, they would obviously know from the other 99 documents that it should be shop, which is called a variant. They're missing a letter here and there. But we have a hundred documents to show that it should be shop and not Shah. And so the rule of thumb is that if the more text you have, the more accurate and precise you can be, because the more you can look at. So let's look at a couple of secular pieces. Pliny the Younger, seven copies. Plato, seven copies. Caesar's Gaelic Wars, ten copies. Aristotle, 49. Sophocles, 193. We're, we're getting higher. This is Thucydides was considered one of the greatest historians. There was 1,400 years between his original and the earliest manuscript, and he had eight copies, and nobody questions his history. The second most attested book, again, Homer's Iliad, has 643 copies. It's amazing. It has a 95% accuracy within all the documents. That's good. That's really good. However, the New Testament can beat that. The New Testament, just from the Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew manuscripts that we have, we have 5,686 manuscripts that can attest to the New Testament. So if the logic stands, the more copies you have, the more precise, and the more accurate you can beat, the more you can know what the original document says, puts the Bible at a 99.5% accuracy within all the manuscripts, and that is including if you add Coptic, Syriac, other Arabic languages, and Latin. That includes up to I think it's 24,633. I think that's that's right. Yeah, 24,633 manuscripts that we have. Second, attest, well attested book, 600 and I think 83 or 43. 24,000. That's unbelievable. That's amazing that we have such accuracy. But some of you might be asking, well, why the 99.5%? What's that other 0.5%? I've got to know what that 0.5% is. What's well, What we call variance. Like I said earlier, John went to the Cupcake Shah. Sometimes when they're handwriting or hand copying something, they miss a letter. There's only a few instances where they, they actually say, okay, we don't know if this portion of Scripture was in the Bible or not, but none of them have to do with major doctrines or or major theologies or anything like that, we can actually fit all the discrepancies and all the things that they question on one half of one page. So a half of one page. It's very little. And so when you get out minor variations like the missing letter here and there, and again we have 24,000 copies that we can prove the accuracy of, it only comes down, it comes down to 99, 99.5% accuracy. And here's why. The first is he's protecting the Bible. Can you imagine if God said, okay, here's the one book, gold plated down from a cloud, here it is. One, not only nations would war over this and many people would be killed to get this, but it's not really good for preserving your word. Here's why. Let's just say you have the one copy of the Bible. There can't be any copies, any manuscripts. You have the one copy of the Bible. And say, you really like cupcakes. I don't know. Maybe I really want a cupcake. Because that's all I'm talking about this morning. So let's just say you really like cupcakes. And you are the protector of the Bible. And you decide, oh, wouldn't it be cool if I can get cupcakes every morning? So you get the Bible. You write in. Not showing your ink work or anything. Every morning at 8 a.m., the protector of the Bible gets cupcakes. And so you preach that that Sunday that every... uh, Every person has to bring you a cupcake in the morning. and Monday morning, you have 20 million cupcakes. That would be awesome. However, it would be that easy to change one document. As opposed to having to change 24,000 to match up to what you say. He's preserving his word. He is trying to have accountability within his word. Second, I think he's trying to preserve us. People make pilgrimages every year to go worship an item that they think is a holy relic. Our... Propensity is to create an, an idol that we can worship. Can you imagine if we had the one Bible, gold plated all from heaven, we would go and worship the book. Now, listen to me. I believe that the word of God is powerful. I believe it is transformative. I think we have the, should have the highest respect for the Bible. However, I will never worship the words on this page. I will worship the one who put them there. He's protecting us by having multiple copies, so that we can keep it accountable. And so, if the Bible is the closest in length and time, most, has most manuscripts, and is the most accurate, we can be confident that the Bible that we have today was the Bible that was written back then. But the next question is, well, how did the authors get their information? And that was the second thing we're going to go to, eyewitness accounts. But there's two problems that they say with eyewitness accounts. There's two arguments they raise. The first is the multiple translation argument. They say, well, the Bible's been translated so many times, it can't be accurate. It's like a game of telephone. You tell one person, they tell the next, they tell the next, they tell the next. And by the time you get to the 10th person, it's completely different. That would make sense if that's how we translated the Bible. From the previous translation. So for instance, I usually use the NASB. So if they translated the NASB from the NIV and got the NIV from the New King James Version, and they got the New King James Version from the King James Version, they got that Bible from the Geneva Bible, of course there's going to be differences. However, that's not how translation works. When we go to translate the Bible, we go back to the 24,000 manuscripts that we have that are 99.5% accurate. So... It doesn't matter how many translations we have because that's not how you do translation. So really their argument has no bearing at all. Second is the overzealous monk argument. This is the idea that the Council of Nicaea needed to doctor up the manuscripts and make Jesus look divine, that he, he wasn't divine, so they had to go in and change the documents. Well, let's look at their argument. Let's assume they're right, that they went in and changed their arguments. The first thing that they would have to do, these monks would have to find 6,000 Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic manuscripts. They would have to change them the exact same way. They can't show their ink work. They can't get caught. And they would have to put them back where they stole them from without anybody knowing. Then, since we have 19,000 other manuscripts, they'd have to learn how to lie in Syriac, Coptic, Latin. They would have to change them just the same way as they changed the Greek documents, all the other documents. They can't show their ink work. They can't get caught, and they have to put them back. But not done. Then, they would have to learn how to change the early church fathers' documents. We can burn every New Testament, every Bible today, and recreate the New Testament alone, except for 11 verses by the church fathers' documents. So, They would have to find all the church father's documents, learn how to lie like they learned in Greek, Aramaic, Hebrew, Coptic, Latin, and Syriac. They'd have to change it the exact same way. They would have to get them, put them back without getting caught. Oh, and they would need 300 years to do so. It's not plausible. That's all I'm saying. The argument's not plausible. And so we have to say, okay, if we know that the Bible that we have today is the Bible that we had back then, how'd they get their information? Well, we have eyewitnesses. We have multiple eyewitness accounts. Multiple different types. So it's not just one. The first is that we have the writers, the apostles, the disciples themselves witnessing. First John 1, 1 through 1-3 says this. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And in verse 2, he said, we have seen and we testify and we proclaim... Number three, verse three says, What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also that you may have fellowship with us. They have seen, they have heard, they have looked, they have touched. Our text this morning, 2 Peter 1.16 says, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. John 20, 30 through 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is interesting right here in John. We don't have everything Jesus did. It's not exhaustive. However, this scripture is saying it is sufficient for someone to know that Jesus is the Messiah. They have put enough information about his deeds His wonders, all the miracles that he did, his proclamation of being the Messiah. They put all this stuff in there because it's sufficient. It's not exhaustive. There was much more that he did, but it was sufficient. Some people think that Jesus did what was said in the Bible. That would be weird because then he wouldn't be lived for most of... I mean, they, they, they say that Jesus probably... What's in the Bible, it was only a year of what his ministry would have been. And so there's two years unaccounted for. But... He mentions here that it was probably signs, wonders, the exact same thing he did. It just wasn't exhaustive, but it is sufficient. But not only did the writers be witnesses, but we have other witnesses. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. It says, This after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. At this point, some have died, but we still have at least 300 eyewitnesses. Why is this important that they remain till now? Because of, again, Preservation of his word. Can you imagine? Jesus goes into the marketplace. I guess I'll use the cupcake analogy again. Jesus goes into the marketplace and he buys a chocolate cupcake. Okay? He wants chocolate cupcake. But 300 eyewitnesses that were there at that time say, No, he got a red velvet cupcake, which are way better. And so we would know that he didn't get a chocolate cupcake, but he got a red velvet cupcake. That's what having eyewitnesses does. It allows you to preserve your word with better accuracy. We have Acts 10, 38 through 43. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God appointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. Look at verse 39. We are witnesses of all these things. In 41, it says that he became visible not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. In verse 43, says that the prophets bear witness to his name. They bear witness to him after he's resurrected. Acts 1, 3. To this he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a, 40, a period of 40 days and speaking the things concerning the kingdom of God. So we, don't have, we have the writers who witnessed. We have other witnesses. We also have something that is unusual. We have people who are hostile to God who are witnesses. Look at Acts 22. Peter's talking to the uh, Jewish leaders and he says this. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Peter is going to these people who are hostile against him and hostile against God. And he says, listen, you saw exactly what I saw. You don't do that when you're in an argument with somebody, if you're not 100% sure. You don't do that. Because if you're wrong... Your, your credibility is instantly ruined. But Peter does that. And so you'd expect that if he was wrong, that they would have dragged him out and stoned him to death. But what happens? It says that thousands were added to the number of believers that day because the Jewish officials had no adequate response against Peter. They saw what he saw. Not only that, let's get some, some evidence that's outside the Bible. Josephus was a Jewish historian regarded as a pretty respectable historian. I have a quotation from him, and I'm just letting you know right now, this is not the full quotation. Some people have argued what part of this quotation was Josephus's and what part wasn't. There's some, there's some people who think that part of it wasn't him. So what I've done is I've taken out everything that they have, they have questioned. This is only parts that people say this is 100% Josephus. This is Josephus' writing. Okay, so that's what I did. Let's look at this. About this time, there lived Jesus, a wise man. For he has, or for he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people who accepted the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks and when, upon the accusation of the principal men among us, which is the Jewish officials, Pilate had condemned him to a cross. Those who had first come to love him did not cease. This is interesting. I put this in uh, uh, brackets because I thought this was interesting, but it is Josephus. He appeared to them spending a third day restored to life, for the prophets of God had foretold these things, and a thousand others marveled about him. And the tribe of Christians so called after him has still not to this day disappeared. He has also talked about James's martyrdom and Jesus being his brother. So what can we know from Josephus? This is what we can know. A man who, by the way, was not a believer in Jesus. He, he was Jewish and he never believed that Jesus was the Messiah. We can know this, that his reputation was a wonder worker. He was a brother of James. His crucifixion under Pilate was at the information of the Jewish rulers, which is coherent with the biblical story. He claimed to be the Messiah. He had a messianic claim. He was the founder of the tribe of Christians in that he believed that there was something weird going on because he appeared three days later after he died. So we don't know if he believed in the resurrection or not. We just know that he was surprised that he saw Jesus or people claimed to see Jesus after the three days. So we have eyewitnesses. So what does this mean? means that the Bible is accurate, precise in what it portrays, that the information in the Bible is true, accurate, and precise. It was by eyewitnesses. It can't be fabricated because we have the accountability from other eyewitnesses, and we have extra biblical evidence for what the Bible says is true. So what do we do then with the supernatural stuff? In verse 17 of our text this morning, it says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. What do we do with the supernatural stuff like that? They heard a voice from God. Matthew 14, 22, Jesus walks on water. Luke 1, 26, the virgin birth. Jesus' death and resurrection was miraculous. The greatest, I believe, one of the greatest prophecies... In scripture is from Psalm 22. Psalms 22 is a prophecy about Jesus going through the crucifixion, written by a man a thousand years before Christ at a time when crucifixion was not around. He had no idea what a crucifixion was, and yet he is extremely precise in the in the portrayal of this moment in history. I'm gonna give you a few references first of all, and then I'll, I'll, I'll read the passage. Psalms 22:18 says, they divided my garments among them from my clothing and they casted lots. All four gospels describe this event happening. They said they wagged their heads. The psalmist's description of people's reaction to him indicates their scorn and derision. Just like the psalmist, this is what Jer- uh, Jesus experienced. They said that he, uh, in Psalm 21, uh, 22, the first verse says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the same way, Jesus' physical sufferings Pale in comparison to the trauma of being forsaken by God as he takes the weight of sin upon himself. Psalm 22 is probably the most gut-wrenching for me. He trusts in the Lord, let let him deliver him, for he delights in him. In Psalm 22, the psalmist wrestles with God's silence. And despite his cries, God did not answer him or deliver him. You see, this was Jesus also in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus also prayed to be delivered from his suffering. But guess what? Still submitting himself to God's will, he was mocked for his humble submission to God, just like the psalmist. Psalm 22, 31, he ends it out with, he has done it. Jesus said this, it is finished. But what's more remarkable than those connections with Psalm 22 and the crucifixion, is Psalm twenty-two, fourteen 14 through 17, which is up here. It says this, I am poured out, verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. The fulfillment of this, Jesus was shed in several different ways while he was alive. He sweated drops of blood. He was beaten. He was being scorned. He wore a crown of thorns. He was being nailed to a cross. And moreover, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Being crucified and hanging on a cross for about six hours would made many of his bones in Jesus' body to separate or become dislocated but not broken. And in the biblical account, none of his bones were broken, but all of them were disjointed. Jesus was in complete submission with no spirit of retaliation in him. Similar to the Israelites when the city I took them captive in Joshua, when they say, when it says, at this the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then we move on in verse 15. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, which is a broken vessel. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have, has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. The fulfillment of this? Well... Water does pour out of a broken vessel. Similarly, the strength in Jesus' body was drained away by the flogging and hanging on the cross. Not only that, every time Jesus would have to take a gasp of breath, he would have to push himself up off of the feet that were nailed to the cross just to get a breath. And not to mention the wood was not a nice, you know, shaved down piece of wood. You're talking splinters and all this other stuff amongst him being beaten, scorn, a flesh ripped off of his body. So every breath was excruciating, which, by the way, that's where we get that word excruciating came from crucifixion. And so every breath he took was excruciating and would have no doubt caused severe dehydration. So when he says, please, I am thirsty, can I have some water? It's because of this beating. he's received verse 17 says i count all my bones people stare at me and gloat over me and they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing when you're on a cross and you're asphyxiated you can see every bone in your core every rib shows i mean it is it is gross and so when they said they count all my bones, it's because the way he is positioned on the cross makes it evident. He's being stretched out so far, it is evident every single bone in his body. And they stare, they gloat over him, they mock him because he, they say things like, you know, if you're really the son of God, why don't you come down on that cross? But he doesn't because he's submitting to God's will. They divide his garments among them and cast for his clothing. They did this because they knew he was already dead. The probability of just this one prophecy happening, Psalm 22 in the crucifixion, is is nuts. It's astounding. But when you look at the prophecies in the Bible, the ones that don't relate to the, the new coming, the second coming of Christ, we have 1,289 prophecies that have been completed and fulfilled. The chances of that are one in, one with 2,000 000 zeros after it. It is... Remarkable, to say the least, that all these prophecies were fulfilled. And so, if we look at this and we say, okay, the Bible is precise and accurate. It contains what it contained back then. It has eyewitness accounts. The prophecies thus far, except for the second coming of Jesus, have all been fulfilled. And that's astronomical that that even happened. That these supernatural events were attested to and they happened. Then we get to the greatest testimony in the passage that we're studying this morning. Verse 21. It says this, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Bible claims that the Bible is from God, written through men by the power of the Holy Spirit. What makes this book so unique, besides all the mounds of evidence for it, is that this book claims to be written from God, through men by the Holy Spirit. So let's just ask this question. What does a book like look like from God? It looks like this. It looks like a book that was written by the power of the Holy Spirit, preserved in an unbelievable way. It has sixty-six books, three different languages, Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek, three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, forty different authors who didn't know each other, who, most of whom didn't know each other. Over a 1,500-year span, it's internally consistent, it's externally supported with 24,000 manuscripts, it has eyewitness accounts from multiple eyewitnesses, and it has fulfillment of prophecy. There really is no book like the Bible at all. I would challenge you to find me a book that is that well attested to. But like I said, it's not an intellectual for issue for most people. It's a heart issue. It doesn't matter what the evidence says. If you're not willing to believe in Jesus, if you're not willing for a moment to think, okay, maybe what he's saying is reliable and true, if you're not willing for a second to humble yourself and look at the evidence, then it doesn't matter what the evidence says. However, this passage not only has four observations, but it has three Quick implications for our lives. The first is this humility. It starts with your heart. We are not the final authority. In verse 20, but know this first of all that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy has ever been made by an act of human will, but a man moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. We are not the final authority. We have to humbly come to this word, we have to humbly come to Christ. We aren't God. But we do need to be dependent on his word. See, so we try to live our own life the way that we want. But God says, no, I have the best out for you. If you do what you want to do, it's not going to end well for you. But here's my word. Take my advice. It's actually more an advice. It's a, it's a proclamation this is my word, we have to come humbly to it because we are not the final authority. The second is this, pay attention. We have to be disciplined in our study of scripture. And in verse 19 it says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. If our aim as Christians is to be like Christ, there's only one way that we're going to be transformed it, and that's by his word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we can be adequate in Him to do what He has for us. We can never accomplish what Christ has for us if we reject the Bible, if we don't read it, if we don't apply it, if we don't study it. James calls the Word of God as a mirror that we're supposed to intently look into. Most of us this morning looked at a mirror. I can tell some of you didn't, but most of us, most of us stared into a mirror this morning. We stare into a mirror because it reveals our imperfections, our blemishes. It allows us to see the imperfections in our lives. And not only that, the Bible allows us to see that, but it fixes it for us. Because the more you become more like Christ the more you fix the areas of your life that aren't appealing to the Lord. And it's not that you have to, it's because you want to. You find joy in living this Christian life. And lastly, we have to reliance, uh, is reliance, trust and obey the Holy Spirit. Verse 20 again, but this, first of all, know this, that no prophecies of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever made was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit of God. Our society wants to tell us that there are multiple truths, that what's true for you is true for you, what's true for me is true for me. But that cannot be when our Holy Scripture says that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. It is the only truth. And so we have to, Trust in the Holy Spirit on the things that we may not understand about this book. Because let me tell you, your answers are, some of them are never going to get answered. Let me tell you, you will always find a question for you to not to believe in Jesus. You will always find a question that will, I'm holding on to this question so tight, so I'm not going to believe in Jesus. There are some things that we will not know, but that's okay. Because we trust in the Holy Spirit on the things that we don't know. But again, we don't have a blind faith. We have a faith that's built on, built on evidence. And so I'll close with this. At the end of this book, Second Peter, talking to this church, he, he finishes out with a, a beautiful greeting, which is what this whole book was about, about the, the Bible, about the truth. And he says this, Therefore, beloved, be diligent to be found by him without spot or without blemish, And be at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. There are some some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do with the other scripture. But you, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and at the day of eternity. Our goal as Christians is to be without blemish, to be without spot, is only accomplished through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We have a reliable source of historical documents, eyewitnesses, the things that the Bible claims happened. But as I said earlier, this is not so you can win an argument. So that the end of all the evidence, you can show that there is a Savior.
0: Sadly, the decision to believe the Bible is often not an intellectual battle, but an authoritative battle. There is overwhelming proof that the Bible is reliable and accurate with the truth it contains, including the truth of the one true God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And when you accept that the Bible is true, you must also accept that God has a claim on your life. The Deceptive Con series continues next week on Crosswalk. We're glad you spent some time with us for this week's Crosswalk. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh. But instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone and everyone who is looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross, and it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. I'm
1: not the water, I'm not the-